You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you want to listen on to what Frank has to say about how cycles and investments do vary city to city. We also had a great chat around population growth and macro drivers, and even how just changing our foreign exchange rate has a huge impact on part of our property market. A lot of the population will shift to the tourist areas now, Why not just the tourists, and we need people to make the beds and, yeah. you know, during the high dollar period, a lot of these tourist resources were allowed to run down, some of them closed. Mm. And so now as the tourists come back, we have to refurbish them, reopen them and build new ones. And mm. so we need builders there as well. And all of a sudden you need, you know, a, you've got employment generation and population shifting to those tourist areas to run the facilities. Mm. And so that population growth means there's a stronger demand for housing. It's yeah. sort of like a very slow moving mining boom, if you like, without the bust at the end of it. Mm. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, Everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of Frank Gelber, Director of BIS Oxford Economics, a role he has held for some decades. And in fact, Frank describes himself as a property forecaster with a long memory. He has forecast and tracked many cycles in his time, and in doing so, his focus is on how things will change, what that means for different market participants, and what they should do about it. Frank works with management and boards, so at a pretty high level, to identify cyclical and structural shifts, to evaluate financial consequences of alternative courses of action, and to help define issues, risks, and strategies. His aim is to work out how to best navigate our cyclical environment, to know how markets will change with plenty of time to prepare, to avoid mistakes and to position into opportunities. We appreciate your time today, Frank, and are looking forward to learning from your experience. Thanks, Veronica. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for being here. Um, To give our listeners a bit of an idea, relation to the property market, who are your clients or who pays you and what do they really want to find out from you in terms of the property market? So really investors, developers, uh, very few smaller investors, although some of them know to find us. And there are ways to get into us. So people have been coming to the conferences for, well, I've been doing them for about 37 years, actually. Mm-hmm. And we always sort of give out this information. Banks, you know, lenders, uh, governments, pretty much everybody comes to us, but usually at the corporate and professional level. What are some of the things that they're wanting to find out from you right now in terms of what do they want research on, whether it's like negative gearing or whether it's changes to government policy? What, what things are they wanting for you to kind of look at and forecast at the moment? Well, you know, we've just been through a development phase in residential and people are still trying to hang on and work out whether they can do any more. And so we do a lot of work in that area. But, but, the, but the real thing is that we track the cycles. I mean, this is a really cyclical environment in Australia, more so than many other countries in, across the property markets and the building markets and hence in the economy too. Um, and, and as a result of that, you know, people need to navigate those cycles safely. And there are big mistakes you can make. And, uh, and our job is really to do the research, to understand where we are in the cycle and what's the right thing to do at any particular time. So if you've got a particular objective, say you're an investor and you want to invest well over a period of time, then there's one sort of course of action you need to take. Some people are short-term investors, traders. Some people are long-term investors. Mm -hmm. Some of the investors are actually people who do refurbishment of residential properties. Mm -hmm. Now, each of those people have different things that they ought to do. Then owner-occupiers, there's a different logic for them too. Mm -hmm. But it all taps into where you are in the cycle and what's the right thing for a player like that to do given how the cycle's proceeding. Now, 
it's not the only thing you need. You also need uh, to be able to do what it is you're doing, like you know, manage your tenant and refurbish the property, or or mm-hmm. develop a new one, or whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, you know, it's much easier to swim against the tide, and sometimes it's almost impossible to swim against it. Yeah, I mean, with development, I guess it's the biggest thing. The biggest risk is where things are going to be when you need to settle those properties, or you know, how the markets, you know, when you actually get the development mm. application through, whether you can actually go and sell them, whether there's a demand for it. So forecasting so so important, I guess, for the development industry. Well, development is a very long game because you buy the site a long time before the finished development. It's not like an investment which you can turn over more quickly. And so they really need to know the, the market four to five years ahead. Mm-hmm. And, and so if you're a long-term developer, sometimes you should be doing nothing. Sometimes when the market is dead and everyone knows it's dead and will never recover ever again, that's not now, um, is the time to buy the sites cheaply. Mm -hmm. And then you start to go through the process of taking it through the development uh, applications and and you're ready for when the cycle swings and it's the right time to develop. But you couldn't develop then. Mm -hmm. And so we do not just residential, we do all the commercial, all the major commercial property markets Mm -hmm. as well. Can we just wind back a little bit? You said that Australia's property market is more cyclical than any other in the world. Why is that? Um, I don't know. (laughs) See, I I grew up in Australia, learnt my trade in Australia, saw the cycles, Mm. and I'm surprised that the others aren't as cyclical as Mm. ours, Mm. but they're not. Uh, They're much steadier. They do have cycles, um, but, you know, they tend to dominate in Australia. And if you get the cycle wrong, you can get really badly caught. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. But apart from obvious macro forces that are locational, such as, say, mining booms, how do those cycles play out in different areas across Australia? Uh, So um, if you were talking residential now? Yeah. Yeah. So there's nothing that says that residential cycles have to be in sync. In this last capital cities cycle, they've all been in sync, but they've been cycles before where Sydney is gone and Melbourne hasn't and Brisbane has or it, it look at it, it it's idiosyncratic and you know a residential cycle how long does it take on average well I guess I mean no I'm, no, no I'm, tell me the answer no, to you that tell you because I no, no 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 is it five well, years I don't know it's, it depends on where it <laughs> is well everyone <laughs> says seven years but yeah. it's not no no it, it, no if you ag- aggregate them all together it looks like seven years mm. but individual cycles are a lot longer yeah. really ah. well now if you look at Sydney well, Take it from the bottom back to the bottom again, right? Or the top, yeah, that's right. The top. A full yeah. cycle. Mm. So if you look at Sydney, we've had four big cycles in the last fifty years. Wow, okay. big cycles, mm. big cycles. <laughs> but they cut but, little blips in the middle. <laughs> Is that well, what you say? Well, well, the cycle tends to go. I mean, for, you need something to set it off, and yeah. usually it's a deficiency of residential stock, mm. and then financial conditions. Right, usually yeah. you fall in interest rates or whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, it takes forever to get going and then it gets going and it mm-hmm. builds momentum and goes right over the top. Mm. We end up building too much. The market's oversupplied, comes the crash, mm-hmm. okay? Or it can also be uh, nipped in the bud by a tightening of uh, money yep. Yep. like this one was. Yes. Interestingly, mm. APRO was for the first time ever successful in nipping a cycle in the bud and smoothing out the cycles, mm. yep. you know, which is astounding. But having said that, in the last cycles, the, the thing that people forget is how long it takes to absorb the excess mm-hmm. capacity created during the boom. So yeah. you've got a, a strong upswing in the cycle. Everyone gets carried away by the boom and very strong rises in prices. Mm-hmm. So those four cycles I mentioned to you, each time prices doubled. Mm-hmm. We went to levels of prices that were unimaginable before the boom. Yeah. Okay. Each time. Yep. It's not a new phenomenon. This is just another cycle, remember? Yeah. Okay, mm. so then we then we get through and we have a, a period of either stagnation or sometimes falling prices. Mm-hmm. High inflation hides a fall in real prices. Mm. This is a real price rise market and you should always do that. Yep. And this time inflation is low and interest rates are low. Mm. So the danger is that people have geared up very highly in a low interest rate environment. If interest rates go up, they can get caught. Mm. Yep. So, but So that's our danger this time. Yep. But the point is that... Then we see the downturn, which we'll see a fall in real prices each time. Yep. It takes about seven years to get your money back if you bought near the peak, usually. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Seven years. And, and the stagnation that follows is really long. 
So everyone still remembers the boom now that we've just been through in the capital city markets. Um, but forget it. Mm. You know, just sit on your hands and be patient and wait for the next cycle. And the next cycle will not come before we see a long period of stagnation, yeah. much lower building activity, weak prices for a long time. Look how long we waited for this one. Mm. It was a decade since mm-hmm. the previous cycle, you know, probably too long. It yeah. seemed like an eternity before investors finally came out. And finally, it was Chinese investors that sparked off this upswing. Mm. And then we all joined in. But at the end of the day, there was already a significant deficiency of residential stock. And it was crying out for an upswing. But we were so nervous after the GFC, mm. you know, that we really didn't start. And now we had a, a God Almighty boom. Okay. So, but forget the boom because you're going to go through a long, difficult period before the next one. Yeah, I think the real prices things people kind of forget about all the time. Yep. They just say, well, it's a million dollars. It was still a million dollars in 10 years' time. Mm. So it hasn't gone up in value. Yeah. Inflation actually- is running at 7 or 8% in the meantime. Yeah, it's from That's right. Mm. And so it actually has gone backwards because generally speaking, if you've owned a property, you've had a mortgage with it, and that mortgage has cost you more than it probably is to rent, generally speaking. And so you've actually just got a cost to live in the property that's you know accruing. So if prices aren't going up. You're actually going backwards. Yep. A lot of people don't, you know, yeah. factor that in. And that's one of the dangers of overpaying, you know, when you go and pay an extra hundred or two hundred thousand dollars for it mm. with the expectation that it's going to keep going up. If it doesn't and it just goes sideways, you kind of overleverage yourself. And the big risk what you're mentioning there is if interest rates go up for a lot of the, the Sydney investors, is that what you're one of your fears, I guess? Well, it is. I, don't, I think it, it'll smooth out because the banks will be at great pains to extend the period of the loan and to, to mitigate any effects. So they don't want anyone collapsing. But at the end of the day, you know, some people have borrowed too much and it will find it, it, it's quite onerous when interest rates rise. But having said that, I don't think interest rates, at least from the Reserve Bank, are going to rise anytime soon mm. because the economy is soft. And actually, the residential downturn will keep the economy soft for another two to three years before we start to get stronger growth coming through early next decade. And then there's that piece that consumer confidence brings into the whole thing, doesn't it? I mean, if we feel like our primary asset, our home, is worth less than it was, say, a year ago or two years ago, we're less confident in our other expenditure. Doesn't it have a sort of a bit of a knock-on effect? Well, probably, but I think a lot of the expenditure we make when the housing market is strong is is basically on on refurbishment yeah. and mm. uh, and furniture mm. and we'll redo the kitchen yeah, or yeah. something like that. And we feel quite confident in doing that. And a lot of the expenditure we cut back is related to that. Mm. But we didn't see a great boom in refurbishment this time. Remember, this was quite an unusual housing boom yeah. in that it was driven by the investor market, yes. building high-rise mm. apartments built to a rent so they're small. You know, and, and at the end of the day, it was the wrong stock, you know, mm. because basically the strongly growing parts of the population are the empty nesters basically downsizing and the uh, upgraders, the families that started off at a unit and then married and now they're having kids yeah. and they're growing out of the unit and they need a bigger place to live. Or even with, a bigger unit. It, or a bigger unit. But we built the wrong units. They're I all know. Small. Yeah. You can't fit it all into eight squares, I've got to tell you. This is nuts. And I reckon there might be a bit of a, a business opportunity. Someone come along, get all those units, knock holes in the walls and join them all together and Turn them into a bunch of four-bedroom units. Oh, yeah. It's too expensive. They built them that way because they got a lot more money for oh, per square metre. Exactly. And this is the thing. And this is the one of the – we're always going on about why buying off the plan or brand new is a bad idea for investors. And there's lots and lots and lots of reasons. And this is just another reason in that the stock is designed – but to maximise the profit to the developer, go for it. They're in business. That's what their job is to do. Mm. The silly investors come along thinking two-bedroom apartments are great. Everyone wants to rent a two-bedroom apartment. Well, I'll tell you, it's interesting. I've been looking at Lewisham and all that new stock that's coming on the market at the moment. There's swarms of two-bedroom apartments, swarms of them. And yet there would be families who'd be quite prepared to rent three-bedders, but there's none. They don't mm. exist. Well, that, that's what's happening now. You see, the developers trying to rescue projects are actually building bigger apartments, mm. not getting as much return, but actually getting the actually sort of selling pre-sales. Them. Well, you're selling them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they need the pre-sales to be able to bank the project Yeah. because otherwise the bank won't come into it. And, of course, one of the things that APRA tightened up was the level of pre-sales. So the yeah. developers need more and more equity. And so they tighten not just up on the purchases but also on the developers. Mm. Yeah. 
your point very early on around cycles and how long do they take? I think that's one of the biggest elephants in the room with the property market because a lot of research houses and people love to publish property clocks and then they like to put the whole country on one property clock. What's your view on that? So let me just start a little bit roundabout. So we have a very simple methodology. We count demand and supply and project them forwards to understand whether we're building too much or too little and whether on a cumulative basis the market is oversupplied or undersupplied. Yep. And that's what's going to drive prices. Mm. In commercial markets, it's what drives rents. That yep. methodology we apply in commercial markets as well. And, and at the end of the day, that has for a very long time been a very reliable indicator of the next swing in the cycle. So it's very difficult to know precisely when a thing will happen or how high it will go. But what we really can do is understand where we are in the cycle Mm. and to know what the direction and broad magnitude of the next swing will be. Mm. And so, you know, we've known this downturn was coming for about three years. And because by the time we built all that stock and it came onto the market, we would have been oversupplied. Well, Mm. actually, Sydney's not oversupplied. It's been nipped in the bud by the interest rates. Our problem in Sydney is affordability. But having said that, we've always done each of of the markets separately, you know, and and you can see them all going out of sync and that demand-supply relationship helps you to understand where you are, which one is going to participate in the next upswing or not. So when we saw the mining boom, because we tracked the mining cycle in the economy as well, and, and <laughs> you know that when the investment phase <laughs> is finished, there aren't going to be as many people there. And all these people that jumped in and bought portfolios of properties at ever-escalating prices and rents in the mining areas was insane mm. because you know when the mining boom is over, you know, there's no one to live in the houses and the whole market will collapse. And we used to tell people that and, you know, some would believe us and some wouldn't, but, you know, that was just simple to know. In the big cities, mm. it doesn't work that way. You've usually got continuing population increase. It's about the extent of it relative to the amount of building. Mm. And, now, and so they're all different. That's the point. Yeah. But the but within a city, say, so how uh, micro do you go? Well, we do go relatively micro, but you see – there's no general rule that, you know, the low end is going to start first or this suburb is going to start mm. first. It, but they all compete with each other because the, the, the marginal tenant or the marginal owner can move between suburbs. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so it actually goes in a whole market and sometimes into areas surrounding those markets. Mm. You know, so, you know, we go up from Sydney up to the Central Coast you know, as a, uh, as a dormitory suburb, basically. Yeah. And so that's that, that affordability drive, isn't it? So people say, oh, I can't afford what I want in Sydney. So, oh, oh that's, all, that's all right. I'll go and commute. Yeah, well, hold that thought because <laughs> actually that, that's a guide to what happens next. Mm. So uh, the upswing can start in a specific part of the market. Usually it's not investors. Sometimes it's owner-occupiers. Yeah. Mm. You know, sometimes it's high value, then it spreads to low value. Sometimes mm. it's low value. Yeah. Spreads. And so you need to be reasonably flexible about how you view it. Mm-hmm. Just understand history as it evolves and what it means for the rest of the market. But mm. Sydney is a whole market. Yeah, right? I think you, start, you started your point there around uh, how you look at forecasting is you look at demand mm. and then you look at supply. And, you know, whenever I'm talking to clients around property, we always try to go back to those two basics because mm. if you can understand the supply of what you own or what you're buying and is that restricted or is it maybe going falling in, you know, because they're knocking houses down. Mm. And if you can understand the demand, who wants to own it, who wants to live in it and rent it, you always kind of build a really good base of whether it's a good investment or not. So I guess with your forecasting, if there's a supply issue across Sydney, what most people want, downsizers will want those beautiful old apartments with harbour views, you know, in lifestyle suburbs. We can't really build many more of those or we, we don't want to. And families kind of want those big houses and we can't really build any more of those in those inner rings. How do you kind of solve that long-term supply issue when there's just growing demand and we can't, we're not building any more of those? Well, because people change and, and they become realistic in what they can afford and, and they have to be realistic mm. because if you can't afford it, you can't go there. Mm. And the way in which that works itself out is in relative price. And so if you look at, you know, say the, the different parts of the market, we tend to look at median prices, not we, but people tend to look at yeah. median prices mm. as, as a market indicator. Now, high-value housing has a much greater cyclicality and a much stronger long-term growth. And so some of those harbourside suburbs that you were talking about, I've seen halve and triple 
on about three occasions in the last 35, 40 years. Av yeah. mm. and triple, you got it? Mm. Yes. And so yes. now, now because it's even more cyclical, and that's because there's a real affordability issue. So when people have got wads of money that to spend on housing, they can go there. And when they haven't, the price collapses because, you know, anybody who wants to sell hasn't got a market. It's, but it's also a much smaller market in terms of the whole market too. Almost, well, by definition, yeah. Well, yeah, there's only a few a handful of people that can afford, like there's only well, one person that can afford a $100 million waterfront. No, I'm not talking about the 100 million. <laughs> no. In yeah. today's market, I'm talking about the 2 million plus. Oh, you're talking yeah. about the 2 million well, plus, right. Yeah, mm. well, maybe. No, hang on, sorry, sorry, that was that was before the upswing. Yeah, yeah. Now it's six. Now, yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> okay. It's just nuts. Yeah, you got it. And, so, yeah. and they're the ones that will fall the most yes. too through the downturn, you yeah. know. And so, hang on, if you wanted to buy a really high value house and you had the money sitting on the sidelines. <laughs> well, but that's it, you see. If you're an owner-occupier or if you you really need to work with your long-term objectives and how to achieve them. Mm. So, if you're a, an owner-occupier looking for a house in a specific market, then what you do is you think, well, when's the best time to buy that thing? Because the buy decision is the crucial one. Yep. If you buy at the top of the market, then you know you're really paying over the top, but you can buy the same house Let's call it for half, maybe a third of the price, if you time it right. So you need to be very patient. Mm. And through people's lives, they can do that. And look, we all make most of our money out of the residential market in the end. Great benefit of working for BIS, Uh, shrapnel in those days, but Mm. now Oxford has always been, you know, kind of the people knew what to do about their housing. Mm. And so they made money out of housing, even if they didn't get very much in the income. Well, they did. But the point here is, you know, you just got to play that cycle. If you're an investor, there's another cycle you've got to play because you're shorter term. And because it's so cyclical, you need to understand there are times to sell and certainly not to buy. Yeah, it's interesting you say shorter term and investor in the same sentence because there's a common belief that property is a long game. And in many cases it is, it should be. And you've got to be careful about how you buy and sell and the cost of getting in, the cost of getting out and all that sort of stuff. But the reality is that a lot of investors don't buy for the long term, do they? They no, might no. think well, they're going to, but they don't end well, up Well, exactly. It. And people who go in to do up houses, of course, they're short-term investors, yes, really. So, yeah. And they need to ride the mm. cycle because if it moves against them, yep. they lose money on the yep. on the whole task. And so I agree with you. There are investors that are longer-term, in which case they have to define their strategy accordingly. And we spend our lives talking to people. They come to me and say, oh, well, you know, kind of I'm, I'm thinking of trading houses now, you know, kind of I'm going to upgrade or downgrade or or do, do I sell and rent for a while? And you know, mm-hmm. the real thing is you just need to understand where you are in the cycle and what's the right thing to do at that stage of the cycle. Which is fabulous, you know, because the thing is that it's not, you know, a falling market, for instance, is actually great for some buyers. Upgraders, for instance. You know, the gap, the trading, the actual cost to trade is generally smaller, assuming that you're buying in the same market and all that sort of stuff, but it can often be smaller for an upgrader in, in the current market than certainly, for, say, for a downsizer. A downsizer might be actually better to wait, you know, so that there's, there's some that should really seriously consider trading now and those that should definitely sit on their hands. But, you know, it, it but as it turns out, everybody sits in their hands in a falling market and everybody jumps into it on I a agree. hot market. Yeah. Around... Um- forecasting, I mean, I do a lot of work around kind of helping clients think long-term and planning. And from my kind of experience, everything that happens every year is not what I thought was going to happen, right? There's always the world does something just differently. You know, there's a war, there's, you know, (laughs) trade war, there's, you know, interest rates go down when we think they're going to go up. I was just looking at an article last week and it was around about 20 odd economists and they're all making predictions on forecasting on interest rates, GDP, and you could very quickly see the ones who were very pessimistic and then the ones who were very optimistic. And they've all got the same data set. What's your view on what makes a good forecaster and does personal bias play a big part in it? So as an outsider, you've got to understand who you can trust. I like our methodology because I, I pretty much know what's going to happen in these markets. But I also am at great pains to explain that I may not know the timing exactly. So I also know the limitations of what I'm saying. Mm. But if you know that, there are still things that help guide action. So in the commercial markets now, which are going heading, so Sydney's heading for a God Almighty boom in the office market. Right. Yeah, like the 80s, I reckon. But anyway, (laughs) so here we are. It's going to run for another four, maybe five years. 
we forecast a moderate little cycle where developers back off when they can see the market will be oversupply, and I've never seen a market like that. The risk is it goes longer and stronger with a bigger bust at the end. And so people say to me, oh, it's gone up so much. Must be near the end of the cycle. And I say, no, we're just hitting the development phase. Mm. We're just at the stage where the financial feasibility of new development is coming on in the suburbs where most of the buildings are going to have to be built to mm. oversupply the market. And we're going to see a tight leasing market for three years, which is going to drive up rents. And so at the end of the day, we know this boom, boom, okay, is going to run. But we, we're not sure how long. Now, if you're a cautious uh, investor, uh, value-adder you know, bank, you know, beware of your horizon. And so even when you're coming in now with four to five years to run, you define your exit strategy. Yeah. Or a long-term investor, the question is different. Is it too late to come into this market in the first place? Yeah. You know, because we're already paying much higher prices than the bottom. You know, we were telling them to get in at the bottom, but at the end of the day, you know, kind of not everybody did or mm. some did, yeah. and now they're so tempted by the high prices, they're making a squillion. And so they, they're selling some, uh, but I'm saying, but it's too early. Just mm. hang on. There's, there's plenty of room left in this cycle. Well, the it, residential markets are the same. You know, mm. I mean, so it's just that now we're at the top of the cycle wondering how bad it's going to be on prices. Yeah. Okay, and and how bad it's going to be on building activity, you know. And if you've got a development site, what are you going to do with it? Um, you know, you're going to, how long are you going to have to hold it before it it stacks up for new development? And you know, is, can I make the numbers work? Can I get the pre commitments? Should I spec a development now in a market which is going to be really tough for quite a while? Okay, so the questions are different. Yeah, and I so, guess it's um, hard because markets don't act rationally, right? So, you know, even yes, if they do. Uh, yeah, well, we, we like to think they do. <laughs> Players in the markets don't necessarily. Yeah, that's they it. operate with blinkers on. They act as though the here and now will last forever, mm. and you know it doesn't. Yeah, mm. the So you said, how do you know who you can trust? I'm at great pains to explain to people why we say what we say so that they can understand it and make their own decisions. Mm. And you need to make sure that for each person that comes in and tells you a story, that you understand exactly what they're saying and why they're saying it, yeah. and so that you can judge whether they know what they're talking about or not. And uh, so there are the dyed-in-the-wool pessimists that are looking for a recession in every, yeah. you know, kind of and, – and there are the others that – you know, that, that are optimistic come what may. Well, you know, that's not going to work in a cyclical environment. But at the end of the day, you have to find those cycles. There's the serial offenders, you know, who are consistently every year predicting a market <laughs> downturn or <laughs> there's going to be a collapse. And the longer you keep saying that as a story, you, it's very hard to kind of unwind and say, I'm wrong and I've been wrong for 10 years as the market keeps rising. And the hard part with that <laughs> Hang is- Hang on, that's their get out of jail card. Oh, I'm right. It just hasn't happened yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it pays for them to have clients with short memories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, with our clients, we sort of have to earn our, well, used to have to earn our stripes in the sense that we'd come in and say something unbelievable, you know, kind of, oh, it's never going to happen like that. Mm. You know, if I'm thinking of corporates here. Uh, and, and then it does. Mm. And then there are clients forever. Yeah, you know, and and if you understand the cycle and explain it well to people, then they can take it on board, and they can make much better decisions accordingly. Mm-hmm. So your responsibility as an investor or an advisor is to actually take that responsibility on board. Yeah, because if you're pessimistic, you just never invest because yeah. you always go, well, the market's going to go lower; it's going to be cheaper. And what happens? And you is always you t- find a way to justify why you didn't do it. Well, yeah. the other yeah. thing is, when you've been through a boom, okay, and you look at sort of prices doubling over a four-year period, say, which is what they've done basically. Some have you? Yeah. You know, and so you look at now. I'm going to do a build to rent, you know, development, or or set up a trust with property in it. As mm. as people have done with us in previous cycles, they come along and they say, and they built in a seven percent, you know, kind of real growth in housing prices, <laughs> uh, in, indefinitely into the future. Because it happens say, every single year, every single year, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> Not. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and so we've been doing this for such a long time that our rule of thumb is that r- prices rise in real terms by 2 to 3% on average over mm-hmm. several cycles. That, and that's it. And so when you're looking at 7%, the numbers work beautifully on anything you particularly <laughs> want to do. do. <laughs> okay. But now if you're an investor or something like that, the key then is to say there's a time to, to either sell up or stay out. And then I, now I wait until the market's dead 
and everyone knows it's dead and never recover again. And prices have been falling in real terms and then bumping around the bottom of the cycle for five or six years. Now it's safe to come in. Mm. And what you're doing is positioning for the next cycle. And if it doesn't come immediately, it doesn't matter, you know, because actually you've bought property on a reasonable yield, mm. if you can say that about residential yields, waiting for the next upswing in capital growth. Because as investors in residential property, we need the capital growth. You know, yes, let's talk about that. Oh, okay. Yeah, do. Because, I mean, you know, we're definite advocates for capital growth. Is Yield is just a bit of icing on the cake. You're not going to get rich on an extra 10 bucks a week rent. But, and also for the cost of getting in, the risk associated with it, the level of borrowing and the fact you're leveraging and all that sort of stuff, then, you know, if, if you're not getting capital growth, why bother? There are other ways to invest your money. Well, absolutely. And and, and look, what, what yields are we getting from residential property, oh, from high-value property? Well, 2%, or 2%, 2 to 3, you know, value, yeah. Yeah, well, 2 mm. to 3 to maybe 4 and we'll look. And that's now, gross. You got to <laughs> It's interesting though cuz Yeah, and mm. you got to fix up the the place after after they've demolished the rent tenants have demolished the joint, you know. I mean, there's two questions. I mean, I read your article today in the Australian and one of your lines in that article and don't quote me on your quote. Um was that, you know, the dangers of chasing yield and, you know, how that is quite dangerous for investors to go, oh, well, I can't get growth because we're in this low growth world, which I agree that, mm. you know, when you look at all the asset prices around the world, they're priced on very high growth and, you know, very strong multiples. So it's unlikely that you're going to see huge price rises. And then the other option for investors goes, well, I can't get growth, I'll go get yield. And then they start looking for yield. And what's the dangers of just going to chase yield? See, since the GFC, when the GFC cleaned out investment markets completely, property values collapsed, we've seen a falling bond rates, firming yields, i.e. falling yields and rising prices. Yep. And most of the growth in asset prices since the GFC clean out has been associated with firming yields, not a lot with rising rents, to some extent augmented by rising rents. And so over the, you know, Sydney commercial property has seen uh, above 20% returns per annum for each of the last four years. Wow. You got wow. that? Oh, it's so bloody obvious that mm. it was coming. And then- <laughs> and, I love it. <laughs> well, you know- and, but and, Listeners can't see Frank's face. <laughs> He's Fell off his chair. rolling his eyes. Can't believe people can't see this coming, but yeah. please go on. Okay. But I mean, those returns are ridiculous. 20% a year compounded for four years. Can't last, can no, it? No, cannot. No, it can't last. Yeah, don't and, buy in now, boys and girls. <laughs> well, that's not what I say, you see. I, I say. Okay, we'll cut so that bit. Now, well, no, 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 don't cut it. Don't cut it because so you need to make a good judgment about, you know, when to sell mm. and there's a lot more in it. Because mm. we wow. were undervalued yep. post the GFC, yep. rents were too low. All those people in, you know, getting cheap rents in the yeah. in the marble mausoleums in the city, mm. yeah. you know, kind of well, they're not going to be able to afford to be there. So affordability is going to be a problem for leasing market. We can't have any further rises in rents. Yes, of course we can, you know, because they should never have been in those. They are mm. going to have to downgrade their space expectations and move out to the suburbs, which wow. is where they can afford to yeah. go. And the the rich companies can stay in the city and mm. the good buildings. But this is the importance of research, by the way. <laughs> Not knee-jerking. It's understanding the, these dynamics. And, so, and this yeah, is how what, do you know how happen. far it goes? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the way I, we do it is we count demand and supply and project it forwards, mm. and we're going to have a 3% vacancy rate in the CBD for another three years wow. before we can get any stock on board. Okay, bye and, now then, boys and girls. Is that what well, you're saying? We, so no, <laughs> don't, we, don't we take can literally. still buy now. <laughs> mm. And so we've got a, an indicative market internal rate of return over the next uh, five years of 8.5%. It used to be 14 Mm. Okay, but now it's eight and a half percent because you know we are getting towards the peak. Yeah, mm -hmm. and and it, you're right; it won't last forever. Mm. But we also need to know, you know, roughly when it's going to turn down, and it's not going to turn down until oversupply starts to come through and vacancy rates start to rise, and yeah. there's competition to on rents and yeah. rents fall because it's even more cyclical than residential in that respect. And there's a bit of a lag there too, isn't there? Because people have got leases. And so it's only when that lease comes up for renewal, right, or they have to renegotiate. Yep, or Yeah, and yep. so that, that can actually delay the effects. That, that sort of smooths out the curve to some degree, Well, I at guess. the moment it's, it's smoothing out the curve in terms of the rise in rents that people are going to have to pay. Yeah, yeah. Because we've got another 40 to 50% rise in rents over the next four years Ooh. coming through in the Sydney market. 
Maybe not in this building here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, We're but, not in a very salubrious building here yeah. in, uh, in Waterloo, folks. <laughs> uh, so, look, I mean, the whole point of that is to understand where you are in the cycle. But mm. the point I was making in the article was that, mm. look, we've been having these extraordinary returns over the last, let's call it five years yep. to eight years, you know, and, and now, and, and that was with a tailwind coming from firming yields, driving up prices, but now... Bond rates have started to rise, and that means we're going to see over a period of time a softening of yields, probably first in the markets where, where there's more doubts uh, about, you know, about growth. Mm-hmm. And so that means we're running into a headwind. Mm-hmm. And yep. so when we calculate you know, kind of demand, supply, rents, yields, values, expected returns market by market, then they're all lower than they were in the last five years. Mm. Even the cyclical markets, which were in a downturn, like Brisbane and Perth Commercial, you know, kind of, which are still going to be really weak for another five years, mm. they're going to be even weaker because of this. Mm. Yeah. And so now the whole investment market runs into a headwind, and we have to understand that we can't. A lot of people who are investing were looking at seven percent yield and ten percent expected return. Well, those things don't exist anymore. Actually, it was the previous period that was unusual, not this one, because you know we had that tailwind coming from firming yields, okay, mm-hmm. rising prices, and now it's gone. And the next five years are going to be when yields soften and so prices are softer, so they're a bit lower. But the reality is in the second five-year period, we're going to have more sensible sort of you know, longer-run returns, which are not as high as they were in the last five, but not as, high as, they're, not as low as they're going to be in the next five. So, and again, we still have to play the cycles through all of that because it's different market by market. And so investment problem is harder now, but residential is much harder still. Mm. You see, over the years, I can't tell you how many times we've worked for private sector corporates or institutions that have wanted to set up you know, f- uh, funds f- using, uh, 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 investing in residential property. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, can't... we actually interviewed Anthony Millett from BrickX. On this, right. sort of, it, you know, it's interesting to see whether this fractional investment model will take off because it's obviously a very expensive thing to put together for starters. But so, are you seeing? You're talking about build your rent. No, I don't know. This is more fractional. This is actually buying residential property and and effectively carving it up into what they call bricks. They can't call them shares and selling off um, to right. investors a, a piece of all these. Well, these that's properties. just a particular sort of vehicle, right? Mm. So you're talking so about something the, different. Well, I'm talking about the market in which they're operating. Mm. You see, yep. the corporates could never compete with mum and dad investors right. who would invest at yields which were far too low for mm. a corporate mm. to be able to sustain. And the capital growth that we get, you know, is only periodic. And somebody has to go up and fix the place after they wreck the job. Yep. And so, <laughs> you know, yeah. Mum and dad investors actually are doing a great service yes. to the renters. You know, somebody has to yeah. own the properties yeah. that people rent, 100%. and they're leasing them out at rents which are much cheaper than a market rate. Yeah, and that's why a lot of those things never worked, mm. and why build to rent won't work without a massive subsidy uh, coming in from the government. Say. Interesting. So um, there is, yeah, okay. It's, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because people naturally think you know you can go buy a. You know, a share fund in you know, international equities or in Asia or, you know, a bond fund. But, you know, there's not actually any residential property funds out there. Or there really. are overseas. Overseas, yeah. Overseas. Exactly. Not here. Right. They've never worked. They've, they've, people have tried. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the super funds have tried. A number of co- privates have tried. Always failed. Yeah. Okay. And the bank sector was going to try. I know we, we stopped them. But at the end of the day, you know, that uh, they might set up on the expectation of high capital growth, mm. um, offsetting the low yields that we would need to accept. Mm. Um, but the high capital growth isn't there either. Yeah, and so investors don't want to invest because they go, well, I'm only going to get you know a small yield and my capital growth is very hard to get because we've got to sell the property. Mm. And so these funds just don't really work. But if you go to the US and the UK, you know they're, they're very common for pension funds to buy yeah. full office buildings wow. and rent them out mm-hmm. and – um, it creates all, you well, know, yields their yields are higher. Yeah. You know, yeah, and they're less okay. cyclical. But is that, has that also got something to do with our population? No. Or lack thereof? Um, no. No. It's just, it's just the way that it's developed where a lot of people, as part of their superannuation, have bought investment housing mm. uh, and they, they look after it. 
Right. You know, right. And, 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 and we haven't recognised what a service they provide. They're providing thing. actually below market rents for those people renting those properties. So mm. how would this subsidy work for build to rent? How would you, would you be? Well, I wouldn't do it, you know. But, but that takes you into the negative gearing debate. Because at the end of the day now, what, what the Labor Party wants to do is to, is to reintroduce tax, well, get rid of negative gearing. But that was one of the things that made this more attractive. Not everyone's negatively geared, but some are. And then capital gains taxes yeah. make that uh, ownership of investment housing by individuals less attractive. And now if we give it to the corporates, they're going to charge a higher rent. Maybe not immediately because mm. in the leasing market, it's about demand and supply. But in terms of building the next round of building, um, they won't be built for the investor market if the investors can't get a sensible return. And if you don't see investors willing to, to lease out properties at below market rents, yep. that's what I call them, yeah, uh, yeah. below market yields, um, then, then uh, rents will be higher to underwrite the financial feasibility of the next round of projects. And so later on, you're setting up for yep. a long-term higher rent yep. for those people who want rental property. Yeah. I 100% agree. I think the, you know, the, a lot of people pushing for negative gearing to go um, think it's this magic bullet that if negative gearing goes, it's going to make all property cheaper and then I'm going to be able to yeah. buy the house that I really want. It's a populist um, yeah. you know, vote-winning, you know. Yeah, and I think that the problem nightmare. with that is it will make it will make. You don't some, like it then. No. Funny that, funny no, that. No, but uh, it I, I will make some properties much cheaper and those properties will be properties that are mainly bought by investors because if I'm a new investor and I'm looking at a property that's got a low yield and it's an apartment, let's say, in Sydney and it's in, say, Mascot. Now, if that's $800,000 and I, if I'm going to get $600 a week rent, that means I'm going to make a loss and I'll go, well, I'm not going to buy it, you know, and if most of these apartments are bought by investors, Investors are only going to buy it if I can get seven, eight hundred dollars a week rent, and I have to pay six or seven hundred thousand dollars for it. So they need the, the the yield to completely go the other way, and the only way that that'll happen is two things: you'll get prices to fall uh, and rents to go up. Okay, now prices can't necessarily fall um, because that's about you know where we're going to build them and how much it costs to build. Hmm. And so what will happen is the short term is that we'll have a bit of a price correction, perhaps. But the medium term is that we need to build the next round of housing, and that's a cost plus exercise. And the only way you can justify that is through a higher rent. In other words, mm. you know, in the next round of building, and remember it's a long way away, we're not going to be building, investors won't be coming into the market and underwriting the, the new building. Mm. And so uh, uh, we will see a shortage of space emerging, which will drive up rents later on. Mm. Uh, and so the whole rental structure goes up. And it's not just the new houses we're talking about. It goes up across the board. Mm. So, um, you know, th that's my concern about, about uh, reintroducing, well, taking away the, the negative gearing concessions, basically, and the capital gains. But you could know? the developers of the last five years, hasn't that been their Christmas, I guess, you know, buying land, you know, if they had land previous, mm. um, and then being able to sell a two-bedroom apartment for $1.1 or a $1 million dollars, but five years ago, they were trying to sell those for say six or seven hundred thousand. They were still making money then. So, you know, no, no, they weren't. And they weren't building them. Yeah, and building was much lower in those days. Remember, we were right, yeah. bumping around the bottom of the cycle. This is about you now. We're talking five years ago, mm. and it, you know, th there was a shortage of stock emerging. Mm. So, we went through the building boom, and we saw the rise in prices, and everyone feels really flushed with that. But, you know, uh, now we've built a lot more and we've, we've eased the pressure on the leasing market. And so you know, vacancy rates are quite low in, 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 in the rental market now. Mm. And that's keeping a lid on rents. In fact, rents are falling a little. But that's a short-term phenomenon. Mm. And the negative gearing thing is a long-term change in system. And so don't forget the benefits of what we already had and don't throw it out the door. Mm. Is It would be my advice. Yep. Yeah, interesting. The one thing that, you know, you mentioned, well, I read in your in your intro that you sent to me was um, cyclical change or cyclical change and structural change. Now, what's the difference? Because I think we're edging into that at the moment, aren't we? Well, is this is this with this sort of negative gearing, CGT, those sorts of things? Hmm. Uh, is that more on the structural change side of things? Obviously, that has an impact on cyclical, but hmm. how are they 
What are they? Well, it depends what you're talking about. So the structural changes, we went through structural changes in the mining boom mm. with the rise in the dollar, meaning that we weren't competitive in trade-exposed, dollar-exposed industries, mm. and so we saw cutbacks in tourism and education services, right. and every, all the resources went to the mining sector, mm. you know, as they really made room for the boom, basically. And then we, that was a structural change right, in the yep. economy. Um, but then the dollar fell and the, as the mining investment boom ended and we're shifted back to the dollar-exposed industries and so that's a structural change back and now we've got strength of, of uh, tourism and education services and, and other dollar-exposed, but a lot of the business services and financial services industries will benefit as well. Mm. You don't hear many people talking nowadays about offshoring a lot of their services like they were, you know, five years mm. ago, okay, where the dollar was high. So the dollar's mm. Im really important and it's a structural change in the economy. Gotcha. But the cyclical swings are just this demand and supply thing, you know, and, and basically it, it comes out of the, the property and development markets because it takes so long to develop. So the longer it takes to develop property, the easier it is to oversupply because you don't see the, the built property until, you know, three years after the decision is made in mm. commercial, let's yeah. call it a year to two years uh, in residential or a bit more for the very high-rise residential. And so the, the oversupply comes later and that drives the, uh, what, what I call a supply cycle. There are demand cycles, you know, with strength and weaknesses in bits of the economy. And so there's sort of cyclical swings and, and, and they come around again, if you like. But, but the structural shifts are different and you need to understand that as well. Yeah, yeah. So the structural shift now that's happening is yeah. really the shift towards tourism and education services and financial and business services. Yep. It's come back to Sydney and Melbourne at the expense of Perth and mm -hmm. Brisbane has seen a setback as a, a result of the fall in mining investment, but will come back because it's a diversified economy and it does a lot of tourism as well. And so a lot of the population will shift to the tourist areas now. Why, not just the tourists, and we need people to make the beds. And, yeah. and, you know, during the high dollar period, a lot of these tourist resources were allowed to run down, some of them closed. Mm. And so now as the tourists come back, we have to refurbish them, reopen them and build new ones. And mm. so we need builders there as well. And all of a sudden you need, you know, a, you've got employment generation and population shifting to those tourist areas to run the facilities. Mm. And so that population growth means there's a stronger demand for housing. Yeah. It's sort of like a very slow-moving mining boom, if you like, without the bust at the end of it. Mm. And so that's just beginning. And, yeah. so, you know, if we're talking residential again, and I'm switching topics on you, sorry. No, no, this, no is this is actually a really important yeah. topic, to be honest, because I think population growth is one of the things that, you know, mm -hmm. if we didn't have population growth, if Australia wasn't a great place to live, if it wasn't highly desirable for many places in the world who, and for people who have got money and also, you know, haven't got money, you know, Australia is pretty high up on the list. Um, but also with a low Australian dollar, doesn't it become even more enticing? If you can come here and bring your money here at a low Australian dollar. Yeah, but we don't let everybody in, you know. And that's and so, a discussion and, at the moment, <laughs> yeah, isn't yeah. it? It is a discussion, but actually population growth has fallen since the heady days of the mining boom, but it's stabilising at a relatively high level. Mm. But my other question is, so where are they going to go? And the answer is they go where the jobs are. Correct, yep. yeah. Okay, and so the jobs before were in Brisbane and Perth and, 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 and out in the, in the mining sites. Yep. And now they're in Sydney and Melbourne, yep. so if people have shifted back to Sydney and Melbourne, but also they're shifting out to the tourist areas. Now, the other thing is, mm. so a lot of people have cashed in their houses in, the, in, in Sydney, in the Blue Mountains, and where are they going to go? They like the heat, so they go north. Some that's the old fashioned way <laughs> to go to Brisbane, and there's plenty of housing for them in Brisbane. I got to tell yeah. you, yeah, but um, a lot of them will go west, okay, Perth. so over the mountains, not that As far in... west. You know, <laughs> west. Let's go Bathurst, within and... New South Wales, <laughs> west, <laughs> okay, yeah. And, 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 and so the country areas miss the whole boom. Okay, except right. for the regions that were mining areas. And you see every region, every country town has got a mixture of those things, you know, and so you just need to judge it on that. But a lot of people now have cashed out of Sydney and need to go somewhere. Sydney's become too expensive. And if they're maybe retirees or, mm. or, or you know, if particularly if we could ever find jobs with the, for them in the country areas, mm. then they can shift out there. And so 
they miss this cycle, and so they're they're not going to see the setback either, mm. right? Or more to the point, the tourist areas. Now, out of Sydney, where do you go? Well, some people like you know, kind of berry or yep. so along the coast or something like that, and that sort of lifestyle. Um, others like the country area lifestyle, and so they'll be stronger. Mm. And the strong tourist areas. They're going to be really strong over a period of time as population shifts there. So you've got to track the population shifts. I prefer to look at jobs as a driver, yeah. But sometimes mm. it's just you know where am I going to live? As Migration. A and what's your view on the population argument right now? With you know, you know there's a you know two hundred thousand people roughly are moving here every year and settling and things like that. I mean, what's your view on? Is that too much? Is it too little? You know, is it sustainable? Um, yeah, someone who forecasts. I, I haven't looked at the numbers recently. I've, I, know, I know what the shape of the chart looks like. Um, no, no, we can absorb that. You know, uh, uh, migration's always been a, a good driver of activity in Australia, uh, and and we're we're probably a, a really successful mixed cultural society. Well, apparently, so, yeah, we are the world's most success, successful mm. multicultural. Nation, so well, well, we should keep it that way, mm. you know. And 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 uh, you know, I mean, I'm out of a migrant family, and uh, yeah. you know, they're everywhere, and a large part of the population. Mm. And so, you know, provided that we can integrate them and provide them with jobs, that works. Mm. Because yeah. then they're going to need housing and all those sorts of things. But you know, I so I haven't got a real view on the migration debate, uh, but I welcome migrants to Australia. It's one of the things that keeps our growth stronger, Australia wide. Yeah than it would be otherwise. If you look at America, its growth is about a percent lower than Australia on average mm. over a long period of time. Why? Because they haven't got as much migration. Their population is older. Ours is younger yeah. because younger people migrate. I mean, there's a saying, isn't it? Is the, the, oh, God. There's a saying with the goose and the golden egg, you know, you, you, know, the, you don't want to kill, what is it? The, sorry, the, no. You don't kill the goose that lays the eggs, um, you know, <laughs> and I, I can't. A stuffed up so, metaphor. Um, I'll let that. <laughs> Hopefully we can edit Don't that. Don't kill the gander either. Yeah, the gander. What are, <laughs> yeah. I forget what the quote is. But anyway, but I mean, I feel like population growth is that as well. A lot of people are calling for, you know, our trains are too busy, our roads are too busy, et cetera. Um, we need to slow down population, et cetera. But a lot of what's driving our economy is, you know, construction, it's foreign tourism, it's people moving here with money, it's foreign investment, and a lot of that comes from offshore. Well, let's keep it in balance, basically. So the, the, a lot of problem that that uh, the government seems to be concerned with is is uh, the strength of migration and the number of people that want to come from distressed areas to Australia. And we can absorb a number of them, but not all of them, mm. you know, because there's an awful lot of people looking for a home yeah. uh, as refugees. But we have absorbed in Australia our share of waves of migration in the past, and I think we should continue to do that. Every week, we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Frank, can you give us an example of a property Dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Dumbo? Did you, uh, oh, no, no, I don't do that. I mean, uh, I, my, job, my job is to keep people on the straight and narrow, to <laughs> keep, kick them in the shins and say, why are you doing this or why are you not doing that? So, I mean, not everybody follows our advice all the time. All I'd say is, so the really dumb things that are just go in as into a mining boom town without an exit strategy, yeah. you know, kind of we've seen the results of that. Mm. Um, but, you see, if you go into the residential market now and the expectation, you know, we've missed the, the, the boom bit of the cycle, I can get things a little bit cheaper, so it's going, it's going to resume. Well, they're, they're not sensible expectations. You need to go into a market with your eyes open and understand what's realistic into the future. Yep. And so prices are going to fall now in Sydney. We think moderately, not dramatically, you know, and in other capital cities as well, of course. Um, you know, and, and it's going to be a long time before the next upswing mm. and the next strong rise in prices because prices rise in phases, mm. cycles, okay? And so ignoring the cycle is a dumbo because, you know, it, it's uh, – you'll always get it wrong, you know, mm. and, 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 and there's a lot of pain in getting it wrong. If you're overgeared in that, the banks will foreclose you at, on you at the worst possible time always, um, and, and, and you just need to be careful. And it's your responsibility to make sure 
that you're, you know, you're going to be okay. Now you always take risks because everything living is a risk, but at the end of the day, you need to understand where you are in that cycle. And both ways, right? So you could either be buying at the top of a market, but you could also think you're buying at the bottom of the market, but you know, it could stay the bottom for some time. You could be well before the bottom of the market. It, you know, it could take years to boom. And so one of the other challenges of, you know, someone say trying to pick the next hotspot or the next boom place is what happens if it doesn't boom, you know? And I guess that's the, the hard part we're trying to pick cycles is that, you know, even if you think something should boom, it doesn't mean it will. So the, the safest thing to do is to go into a market that will increase. That's where there'll be population you know, or demand pressures when it's very quiet still. There are still, you can still do well, you know, midway through the cycle, but you can't afford to get caught in the downturn. Mm. The real danger now is that people will think that markets will rebound quickly and so that they're counter-cyclical investors. I love that term. Mm. You know, kind of thinking that, you know, the cycle's fallen, therefore I get in quickly. Yeah. Well, it doesn't, they, they don't rebound. They need to go through that long period of absorbing excess capacity before they set themselves up for the next upswing. So there's plenty of time and we need to learn to be very patient as investors. So you don't make money quickly. Yeah. You make it slowly by mm. making the right decisions at the right time. Yeah. And I think the other thing that we haven't talked about is scarcity. And obviously when you're in a situation where you've got lots of stock, but if there's something, the type of small mm. type of stock that is always going to be scarce, that will always have that demand or the area, the location, like you just touched on before, mm -hmm. those little pockets where, you know, it's sort of, it, it's certainly not going to boom, you know, there's not going to be that bounce back, but certainly the, you, can, you can see modest growth in some types of property over times when other properties will lose value and other areas lose value, but you've got to pick the IT out of the market to find it. You've got to know what you're doing. And you've also got to understand and respect what you're talking about, the bigger picture, what's you're going on. about things like waterfront property and things not like that? Not necessarily, actually. I'm talking more about property with... <laughs> Probably more affordable that... You know, where you're still going to have some type of competition, you know. Yeah. If, if for example, it's a top street in, let's say, Paddington or Wallara, mm -hmm. and it's a nice frontage and it's affordable in the medium price range, competition, you only need two people who really want it. And, you uh, know, and... and yeah, I, I, yeah, what I'm definitely not thinking waterfronts because back to your original earlier on, you said that that about that upper end of the market, you know, they can lose amazing amounts and then they can triple in price and they can half and triple. Uh, long term, you said that they have great growth, but mm -hmm. you got to ride out some pretty phenomenal peaks and troughs to to appreciate that growth. Or no, to just a normal cycle, <laughs> just a normal cycle. And so, even for those, you should have patience. I don't know. Unless I you've think, got more money than sense. No, I'm talking more so for those. I'm talking about something like a a two bedroom Art Deco apartment in a leafy street with a terrace because not many of them have terraces. You know, something like that in in maybe in Wallara where there's always going to be a buyer for that and there's always going to be a few buyers for something like that. That's what I'm talking about. We're in a price range where there's always someone that can afford it that that's very different to the scarcity of a waterfront for argument's sake. So it's a scarcity within a market that's robust. So it, it's a micro demand supply issue. I'd still be patient. Yeah. In the 1980s. I, look, I, am, I absolutely think everyone should be patient when it comes mm. to property because the wrong decisions, getting out of them is excruciatingly expensive and painful. In the 1980s, we um, had a client who uh, had a, a unique build. Oh, so land lease in Australia Square, right? Mm. Okay. And I used to go in there and say, this boom's going to bust. You know, we're building too much office space. Um, I'd sell it, uh, and they'd and no, 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 we could never sell it. We could never replace it. Mm. And I said, well, in the bust one, it's, the next cycle it's going to be fifteen percent below because it's not going to be the the peak building. And second of all, it's going to buy maybe not this building but something like that for about half the price. But that's and, not an owner occupier market. Yes, it is. I mean, they, the land lease was. You know, that, that for them, it was their iconic building. So you're, you know? saying, you're, you're saying. saying that a corporate investor can be just as emotional about a building as, as an individual mm. investor, right? Of course, <laughs> of course. They used to call me Dr. Feelgood because I always <laughs> I'd go in there and tell them these dreadful stories about the bus. But, but of course, the bus happened mm. and, and probably, you know, five years later they realised I was right. Well, they'd, 
Um, and so we fall in love with our properties mm, or certain sorts true. of properties. Yeah, yeah. And so if you're really in love with that sort of property, you have to wait for it to come anyway. Mm. But, you know, people need to make decisions about properties in upswing or downturn. So we're getting older, we need to move into a retirement village yeah. or, you know, kind of we're moving overseas or something like that or I, I want to upsize or downscale or something like that. And so those sorts of properties, while scarce, will still be available and if they need to be sold in three or four or five years' time, it will be at a lower price Ooh. and there'll be more of them available. See, I don't you get won't it. be competing in the same way as you are now. I think I, in certain markets I beg to differ, but that's because that's I'm right. thinking on a micro level. But in terms of the macro level, 100% agree with you, you know, in the, in the terms of the general trends. I could, it's just that I can see it. I have seen it. I've, I haven't been around for 37 years, but I've been in the property market now for um, and it completes, more than a complete cycle. <laughs> and, I mean, certainly between, say, 2003 and 2013, I saw some properties certainly make money in that or some people make money in that time, whereas other people lost money in that time. Mm. And, um, so, and so, look, the cycle is not the only thing. Mm. You still have to be good at doing yes, what it is that you're yes. doing. And that's absolutely. the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no. Mm. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's. That, you got to um, know what to do with the cycle. <laughs> well, you, you know, there's a rare skill in whatever mm. people do in these sorts of areas, and but but it's just about swimming with or against the tide. Yeah, 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 and I think that's fantastic. I really love what you've, and it, it also the interrelatedness of it all. And I think that that's been really great. The, the way you've sort of talked about how the knock-on effect of, of or the domino effect, effectively, the domino effect from from the, the Aussie dollar or from what drives the Aussie dollar right around to how that, that affects population movements, right around to how that affects where people want to live, what they want to live in, who's building it, you know, all that sort of stuff. I think that's a fabulous overview in a way of, of the Australian property market. Still don't, I wish you could have answered why it's more cyclical than any other country. I really wish you had an answer for us on that one. No, don't. I don't know. It could be stronger population growth. Could be more short-sighted investors and developers. Mm. You know who knows, um, but but the you know if you're in a slow population, steady population growth environment without the fluctuations in population, you know you haven't got as many drivers of the cycle. But that's mm. just that's that that's a very short-term way of looking at it. Mm. I think there's a psychological thing going mm. on as well. Yeah, very good. I mean, that's been really appreciate your chat today. Good. Thank you very much, and thank you and. Yeah, it's been fabulous and fascinating and, and the psychology of it, this is why we're here, the elephant in the room. The elephant is a metaphor for our subconscious minds. Mm. You know, we little tiny puny rider sitting on top of the elephant, yeah, our rational mind, think we're in control of this thing and here we are, have this big conversation about the entire property market in Australia and it comes down to human behaviour. <laughs> so there you have it. And understanding human behaviour. Mm. And we do pretty well on top of the elephant as long as we know how elephants respond. Mm. Love it. Most people. <laughs> Thank you so much, Frank. Thanks, Thank Frank. You. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... All about really understanding the difference between macro environmental forces and micro environmental forces in the property market. Now, we just had a long conversation with Frank all about the macro now, he's a big thinker and he's also very, very experienced and he's been, and he's been uh, researching property cycles for many, 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 many years, so he understands that. In a micro sense, though, you have to understand your market. Now, one of the reasons that we talk about focusing on owner-occupier appeal in a property is because fundamentally owner-occupiers are likely to drive prices in a sustainable way over longer periods of time than investors. Investors will come in, they'll all get excited, they'll push an area into boom, but when they leave, who's left behind? It's the owner-occupiers. So when you've got owner-occupier demand for quality property, it doesn't really matter what the investors are doing because there will be always a buyer looking for a quality property in certain areas. Now, this is one of the reasons why in my business, we really focus on this 10K radius of the Sydney CBD as a low risk area to invest in. And one of the things I talk about often is this reverse ripple effect. Now, everyone's heard about the ripple effect. And that is when a market's booming, the affordability 
price or the affordability piece means that people will start looking at the next suburb out and the next suburb out and the next suburb out as they are priced out of their area in which they really want to be. Now, when the market tightens up, those same people would turn around and go, I don't have to buy out here now because I can now turn and look to buy where I really want to be in the first place. So for argument's sake, your archetypal Paddington Terrace, you know, there's always a demand for a really beautiful terrace on a great street in Paddington that's been well renovated, great floor plan, good aspect, and particularly if it's got parking. Now, there is always going to be a buyer that wants to buy that property. If a buyer had been looking at Edgecliff because they couldn't afford Paddington, they're going to turn around and look back to Paddington and buy in Paddington. So it's that flight to quality that we often talk about in relation to when a market softens. When things get tough, quality stands up. And it's all the other dross in the market that struggles to find a buyer. So in these micro markets, that's the sort of drivers you've got to look for. And if you are wanting to buy a home, you certainly aren't going to look at that Paddington Terrace and say, oh, I won't buy that because in five years' time it's going to be cheaper. I don't agree with that. I've seen it play out many, many times in the past. So that's the sort of thing you need to focus on when you're buying in this market. If you're an investor, you can have the same approach. It's that quality owner-occupier demand where there's always going to be buyers that will fight for it. And we're seeing it currently in the market. We've got auction clearance rates, you know, they're, they're dipping under 50% in Sydney now. And yet there are some properties that get competition, even in these conditions. And that's the type of property that will always do it. So the bootcamp for this week is remembering the micro conditions that you need to understand and about blue chip and about quality. Please join us next week when we have Bryce Holdaway on. This is a great episode and it was amazing to have a fellow podcaster on here from The Property Couch, Australia's biggest property podcast. The chat was extremely interesting. We talked about The Sea Change, which is Bryce's new TV show, but we also got very vocal and very topical around property spruikers. We may have got a bit carried away, but it's extremely important because property spruikers are out there and you need to know about them. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Risk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.